Good afternoon. You've got living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Frank Yuli is here in the studio. Frank, Frank, it's so good. Frank, you're sitting across from me. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the table with us today, Cinema Ann Arbor, How Campus Rebels Forged a Singular Film Culture. Out with University of Michigan Press. And Fifth Avenue Press. And Fifth Avenue Press, the library, yeah. Ann Arbor Library. Um, yeah, we should talk about all of those those inner workings of the book, too. Um, sure. But just uh, we are gathered here today with Reverend Andrew um, behind the glass as nice. engineer. And to celebrate this book, because you're going to be doing um, a big book launch mm-hmm. next, next week at Literati Bookstore, yes. Tuesday, June 20th. Tuesday, June 20th at 6.30. 6.30 p.m., and so- I'll be speaking with the esteemed uh, radio host, Martin Bandike, who has uh, recently given up his morning show on 107.1, but is uh, still doing a Sunday afternoon show called Fine Tuning from 4 to 6. And it's a great show. He is a phenomenal uh, presence in the in the culture of the area, but amazing to me, he... Was, is he a film buff? Too? Yeah, he's a super film buff. He, he blurbs the back right. of the book, he, too. He blurbed the book, but also he participated in all this stuff that's like the <gasps> golden days of film on campus. He was going to all the movies that this book is about as a young person. So he was like, oh, I remember going to, doing all this stuff. And he's like, I really missed that one time when Jean-Luc Godard spoke. I was so bummed. And I was like, geez, you, you could have written the book. I mean, he he participated in a lot of the events, so he was a perfect person to have oh, as completely. my uh, interviewer, making less nervous person at Literati. Yeah, yeah, and and it'll be interesting because knowing you, you'll probably get some more stories out of him too from what oh, yeah. he remembers. And oh no, he's he's great. He 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 does. Uh, Michigan Theater has like an Oscar preview thing where he and Moss Collins and Nick Aldrink of the Michigan Theater sat. I went to it a few months ago. And evaluate all the coming Oscar nominations. So you know he's, he he knows movies really well. Well, okay. Well, nice guy. Enough about him. Because yes. today, Frank Uli, today is about you. Yes. You, the writer, creator, maker of this book, Cinema mm-hmm. and Art and Arbor. Um, so we're talking about Literati. Um, oh, I'm good. Keep um, we're talking about Literati's book launch mm-hmm. um, with you next Tuesday. But you had a book launch. With during the Ann Arbor Film Festival mm-hmm. too, that um, took place during the f- festival, of course, in North Quad. Um, what was like? What was that like for you, Frank? Because was that the the first time you'd seen your book sort of taking a walk out in public? And yeah. <laughs> what was it like? And who was well, there? And <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a lot of fun. We had um, as panelists. We had uh, Hugh Cohen, who's I dedicated the book to. He's a professor of film here, still teaching. Ninety-two. I just talked to him on the phone this afternoon. He's got. He's just a, you know, unbelievable presence in the film department. And is he goes he back. The, is he the man that you told me about that you, the professor that you used to work with too? Yeah. Oh, I still. So work it with is him. him. Yeah. Okay, he is the one. Yeah, and he again. He he's such a major figure in the book because he was arrested in 1967 for showing the film Flaming Creatures as part of the Film Society Cinema Guild, which is heavily, there's a whole chapter on just that incident. But um, yeah, Hugh was like one of the judges at the very first film festival that they had jurors in 1964. He joined Cinema Guild in 1960 as 
uh, a grad student and he was helping you know sell tickets and all these things so he yeah he's one of the people that just the whole book flows through his eyes and he was so gracious and i interviewed him many times and he shared his scrapbook he he had his mugshot still from when the Anna police arrested him in 1967 <laughs> and yeah. that makes it into the book there's so many artifacts in this book so many photographs mm-hmm. so many um pieces of paper tickets posters other ephemera that really helps to tell the story that you're telling um in the pages mm-hmm. and through so you used Hugh um cohen mm-hmm. And his the interviews with him as sort of a narrative thread throughout the book because we do see early pictures of him when he arrives as a grad student and then and the mugshot etc. Yeah. No, no, he was there again. I, I when I started this process, so I'm just going to take you back. So yes, U of M bicentennial there. was happening in 2017. Some some say it's 1837. Some say it's 1817 when U of M started. We'll just <laughs> let them argue that out, but. They were celebrating the bicentennial in 2017, and so in 2016, I worked for the uh, LSA Technology Services uh, Support Unit, and they were charging me, who's done some freelance writing and things, with sort of putting together a history of our program for the bicentennial. And I was doing that, and I started, because I'd been in the film societies when I was, when I was an undergrad, too. I love that. And a projectionist for the film festival and the 8mm film festival. So I, I kind of lived through a lot of these bits and pieces but when i was doing this history for the department i work for i thought i kept finding things about obscure parts of the film society story that didn't no one had ever told me about before that were obscure like going back to the 20s you know the stuff that was so i I, god bless this is you know way before the google and all that you could (laughs) go to a library and librarians and i went to library school You know, uh, buyer beware or whatever, but, you know, they would take the newspaper every day and they would cut out relevant articles and put them in little binders so you could look up things by subject so that it wasn't just lost. The librarians were were performing the function of like a search engine so that people could go and say, oh, what happened 10 years ago? Did they, you know, build that, you know, new building? How did it happen? They'd save those news articles. So there was one that was called Moving Pictures. And these librarians in the 20s started clipping these articles out and also grabbing like little flyers and things that were on campus. So this whole part of the story that no one living today could tell me about was recorded by these librarians. This was, the Michigan Daily is now digitized and you can search things, but at the time it hadn't been. So I was just like shocked by all this stuff. And this organization called the Art Cinema League was started in 1932. So anyway, back to the story. So I was working on this history for our department and our department history seemed sort of mundane to me, but <laughs> the film designs seemed really interesting to me. And I approached um, a film or history department uh, professor, Howard Brick, and I said, hey, could I write something about the film societies for the you know, bicentennial, like put it on the website of the bicentennials kind of, because there were all these crazy things they did during that year you were here. They would like go around stenciling things on sidewalks that were like, here's a picture of this building in 1947 or whatever, little landmarks around campus. And they had this massive thing called a hailstorm where they created this, I think these people from like Hungary or some Central European country had this special technology. They built like these towers of like laser projectors that shined on the Rackham building, a movie that was like the history of U of M and it crumbled and it was cued right to the 
the structure of the building. And Tom Bray, I think, was involved in that, I'm wasn't sure he? he? Was yeah. probably, yeah. Anyhow, so they were doing all this stuff, but no, nothing was mentioning the film societies, which in my day was a major part of campus life. It was like, as a college student, there were a few entertainment options. You could go to the Blind Pig, you could go see a concert, but seven days a week there were these film societies showing films on campus, and they were everything from the latest, you know, Indiana Jones movie on Friday night to, like, an obscure documentary that had barely played, like, in New York and L.A., to, you know, Humphrey Bogart, to silent movies with, like, a live pianist. I mean, this stuff was happening every day, every year-round, even in the summer. At, and what uh, year did you say that was, Frank? Well, I was there in the late 70s and Wait, early okay. 80s. Okay. But, again, this started in the in the 20s and 30s. So when I found this sort of back, back, back story stuff, I said, I've got to write this up. And, unfortunately, <laughs> I didn't finish the bicentennial. <laughs> I love this part of the story, Frank. <laughs> well, that was that was a cool part, though, actually, because I was like, yeah, i, I got to interview some people, too. So I talked to Hugh. He's the first person I interviewed. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned Hugh Cohen. And he was telling me stuff, and I just thought, you know, this I've got to do this right. I don't want to just write it for a blog kind of post thing. I, I just I kept thinking of, well, maybe it'll be five thousand words, maybe it'll be eight thousand words. <laughs> and and what do we have like how could you describe the book we have on the table with mm-hmm. us today now? Like yeah. um how many words, the pages so what about, it grew into, basically. So it ended up being about seventy five thousand words and there are it's about 340 pages all told, including the index and everything. And there are over 400 illustrations. So part of the process for me that was most exciting, aside from I interviewed about 80 people, was just finding these amazing illustrations because, you know, there were I had a handful of like flyers that we made to, to advertise movies. But when I was able to get with people... And your own membership card. And my own little membership card. Cinema 2. Cinema 2. But... I started asking people, like, Hugh Cohen, oh, did you save any pictures? He's like, well, I got this scrapbook. I mean, I'm not kidding you, T. The scrapbook is like six inches thick. It was, like, covered so much. Because it was a year, case. right? With yeah. the censor- censor- censorship. Can't even get the word out case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he had, like, the legal, the, the, the depositions and things, like thick, half-inch thick typed, you know, photocopied things of, like, you know, the, the, the deposition of the police officer who arrested him and all this stuff. So it was an amazing resource. And, of course, the illustrations for it from it were perfect. He, he saved even, like, the receipt. The police officer wrote, you know, one film, Flaming Creatures Received, Lieutenant Sotomayor, Ann Arbor Police. Which they never got back. They never got it back, yeah. But they have the receipt. <laughs> now the, the, receipt. the receipt is in the book. And yeah, so, so the book has so many illustrations that, again, with the kind, generous participation of the people I interviewed... And the archives, you going to find, because did you go to the, the Bentley Historical Library? Yeah, I, I, I got some incredible stuff from the Bentley, who has like the photos of the Michigan Daily. So the boxes of like little envelopes, legal size envelopes, and it would have scrawled on it like the, maybe, if they're lucky, the photographer's name, maybe the subject, maybe the date. They were very kind of disorganized but I, I went through those page by page or like envelope by envelope and i would find oh here's some photos of people protest or people doing a bucket drive in 1967 to make you know legal money for the flaming creatures defense and stuff like that right so i was able to find or pictures of a guest speaker on campus george R- romero the director of uh 
um, Dawn of the Dead came here and showed like the first screening of Dawn of the Dead outside of Pittsburgh here and had like, you know, comment cards like, well, did you did you think the violence was offensive <laughs> or was it fun? <laughs> like weird comment cards. Well, but, because I wanted to know and what yeah. what would be the experience like for the viewers? Because the maker mm-hmm. has this vision. Right? right, and so Ann Arbor became what you what you make visible, mm-hmm. Frank, is how um, Ann Arbor was a place of experiment and um, risk taking, goofiness, um, people, um, performative um, elements, music, everything, mm-hmm. and coming together. You know, we hear about um, like other guests have talked about happenings. You know, and the right. things that um, were, were really events that were the things that <laughs> because people gathered together and they were in the space mm-hmm. and these and also groups were formed for cinema because the university um, you, you make it clear mm-hmm. and there's a great quote and yeah, here it is um, not only could the university not think out of a box they were the box um, and this was said by George Manupelli um, who was a University of Michigan art professor and figures also Right. quite a lot in this this book of yours right he was the founder of the film festival and he made experimental films here yeah and was he that because there's one professor who had um they oh that there wouldn't be um the university didn't want to allow film because it wasn't a serious pursuit mm-hmm. and so finally he was allowed to be like under the stairs in sort of a broom closet to mm-hmm. hold a non-accredited class mm-hmm. with students that showed up but only because they were lucky enough to find out about it. Is he the one that did that? Yeah, yeah. He was like, uh, let's make films, guys. And the art art school, which was somewhat conservative at the time, had, you know, no, you know, that's not, you know, making experimental films isn't really part of the curriculum. So he was like, well, can I borrow this space? And they were like, well, um, you know, it, you have to let the janitor, have the janitor let, let you, you in. <laughs> I won't give you the key to it. And there's like a Coke machine inside of it. They didn't want people to steal Cokes out of it or something. But yeah, I talked to several people that were in that class. Pat Lesko, the great performance artist whose book is featured in the book as well, you know, was like, yeah, we were in there with some crude equipment. He was showing us how to make experimental films. And that, you know, let helped lead to her career as a performance artist just because she would actually make films and she would interact with at the film festival. But again, people, one of the, the themes of this book is the people who were doing this, I mean, it just, and I will speak for myself, but it was kind of a magnet. Joining these film societies was kind of a magnet for the like nonconformist weirdo people on campus at the time. It was like, you know, you, you, like there were some, definitely some gay students in those days when they couldn't be out. There were, you know, people that were really smart, but just didn't really know what they were going to do in life. And they're like, I like movies, you know? And I mean, you know, some of those people went on to careers in Hollywood and important uh, industry, you know, like behind the scenes careers. So it, it really was like, again, someone like George Manupelli was an inspiration for these people. And Hugh Cohen, who, who he was like, you know, you're doing this outside of the classroom, but this is part of your university experience and we're going to just make it happen. And it was brave of him as faculty, as both of them eventually as faculty exactly. to, to take it on, too, because exactly. the university wasn't always supportive especially with flaming creatures and some other films that were right. <laughs> shown but we'll we'll get back we're going to take a break today on the program um frank julius here his book his brilliant book cinema and arbor how campus rebels forged a singular film culture you've got living writers i'm t etzel we'll be back 
Beat me, Daddy, A to the bar. There's so much to talk Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. Today on the program, Frank Yuli is here, Cinema and Arbor, How Campus Rebels Forged a Singular Film Culture, his book on the table with us today. Frank, thanks for picking today's songs um, and the clips that we're going to hear. Yeah. What, so why? what did we just hear and why? Okay. So that is Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen with a Beat Me at Daddy 8 to the Bar. It's a cover of an old like 40s or, or, uh, boogie woogie song. And that was recorded at Hill Auditorium in April of 1971 at uh, an event that is described in my book. So, again... Do you want to take us to the event? Yeah. So one of the things that happened was... Are you going to read that? I'll be, yes, here. I'll, 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 I'm gonna, you, we're sharing the book today. You wanted me to read something, and I was like, I don't know what I can read. But that's a good thing to read, I think, actually. Um, I won't read the whole long, long, long thing, because it's, it's a little descriptive. But yeah, there, so that movie, that was uh, recorded at this concert where what happened was a uh, film was being shown in between bands and they had a documentary about the uh, summer Ann Arbor concerts and they they had just recently had the Ann Arbor Film Festival and a guy named Buster Simpson had made this film called Rumpf Truck Company which was kind of a goofy film he had some like found footage of trucks on the freeway and then he cut to the scene where it shows a naked woman laying on the dashboard of a of a truck and um, the the whole scene was quite controversial, so I'll just read a little bit of this. Because, um, again, the Ann Arbor had this whole underground kind of filmmaking scene that sprang out of, as we were talking, George Magnapelli and the film festival. The experimental aesthetic did not always translate well beyond the film festival, however, and could shock people on both ends of the political spectrum. When Commander Cody and his Lost Planet Airmen held, headlined Hill Auditorium in April 1971, just a month after their impromptu acoustic performance at the film festival, a 16-millimeter documentary short called Summer 1970, Ann Arbor, was also on the bill. Uh, projectionist Peter Wilde was screening it, and someone had suggested showing Buster Simpson's Rump Truck Company during one of Cody's songs. It started off well, but when footage of 18-wheelers transitioned to a driver's inner fantasy life, some attendees became outraged. John Briggs was with Wilde in the booth. Quote, it showed the cab of a semi-truck, and stretched across the dash was a naked woman. All of a sudden, there's a pounding at the door. There's this woman, and she is incensed. She's just beside herself. This is not right. You shouldn't be doing this, she said. As the film continued to play, Peter tried to reason with this angry visitor. 
quote, he's engaging her in a conversation and all I'm thinking is she's shooting herself in the foot here because while she's talking and he's talking, the film is still going on and it's not that long. And pretty soon it was done and she was going, oh, crap. According to Jeannie Plamondon in the Ann Arbor Sun, quote, people started yelling from the audience calling the band sexist pigs. A group gathered in back. The band got uptight about the show being stopped and being called names, and eventually about 30 people took over the stage. Finally, one sister got up and suggested that all the people who supported the action should leave the building together. It was unanimous that it was a good idea, so they split, and the music continued, and everyone got down to a good time again. <laughs> anyway, and I interviewed uh, Buster Simpson, who made the film. I inter- ended up talking to Bill Kirchin, the lead guitarist of, of Commander Cody. I even talked to Ann Levinick, who was the nude woman on the dashboard of the truck. And it was amazing. They, they all had these sort of shifting perspectives of that story. But, you know, Bill Kirchner remembered it vividly. He was like, yeah, the protesters got on the stage. He was like, it was kind of, you know, it was cool. It was kind of a point well taken. Yeah, you know. Um, but he said it was kind of all in the lighthearted Ann Arbor way. And that's one of the things I really liked the, how he, he, he described it. Because, you know, the, the Ann Arbor had a sort of a unique vibe. The experimental films that were made here all had kind of a fun kind of, winking kind of lighthearted quality i mean not every single one but there was always this sort of i don't know freshness midwestern exuberance if you will that ann arbor had a sort of a different feel and that you know there's experimental films from around the world and new york had an experimental scene and california the bay area in particular but that's one of the goals of this book was to kind of there's a whole chapter on the filmmaking that took place here in those days where it was you know 16 millimeter underground film and um you know I, I tried to capture that but that particular incident was just kind of a highlight of how sometimes these things would be polarizing if they were shown to the wrong audience yes yeah and so frank you mentioned that for that one part that you just read out to us you had actually done three interviews that went into as source material for that mm-hmm. so how with the shifting perspectives that you said mm-hmm. obviously each person would have their own mm-hmm. what was it like for you as a writer mm-hmm. uh, to become the storyteller <laughs> to fuse them well that was that was just delightful I mean actually I talked to four people because I talked to the, <laughs> one of the projectionists too um, yeah it was like uh, you know again I started this process thinking well I'm going to interview you know six or eight of my old buddies Professor Cohen a few you know old cronies and look up some newspaper clippings, but I just started realizing that I could sort of layer this in a way that would just really bring it to life. You know, there were people, like when I, I have two chapters on the Ann Arbor Film Festival's early years, and I was able to talk to, well, I found, thanks to the Penny Stamps lecture series, uh, George Manapelli gave this hour-long talk on the history of the film festival so his in 2009 yeah his vital perspective was preserved from that so i was able to use direct quotes from him but i talked to his wife betty johnson who sadly just passed away a couple months ago i live in the bay area but she she had some great remembrances of it and hugh cohen was a juror you know so he had some stories i talked to some of the filmmakers i mean i talked to pat Alesco, who you know was the performance artist who everyone remembers blowing their minds from the film festival and of course she gave me some amazing color photos of herself that no one had ever seen before but I talked you know throughout the the time period I talked to Jay Cassidy who took over as manager when Manupelli stepped back I talked to Woody Sempliner who ran it in the late 70s talked to Ruth Bradley who ran it after him talked to Vicki Honeyman who ran it for a long time 
Oh, well, Vic. Later on, of course. <laughs> Shout out to Vic. Yeah. And um, so, you know, I, I really, I, I, I really want to get people's firsthand mm. recollections. And I talked to people who watched it. I talked to Ken Burns. Ken Burns came here as a teenager, like a 16-year-old. He was like, yeah, we used to feel like we were kind of sneaking in when we came to the film festival because there were like these like, kind of beatnik people there. And he was like soaking it up. And, and, and you know, he, he felt like Ann Arbor was just like this vital gateway to him becoming a filmmaker as a teen, you know, because he was exposed to so much stuff. But it was fun to get those different viewpoints and kind of, you know, filter it all through some documentation that I had also found. So I, you know, I tried to create a little stew of people's firsthand quotes and you know actual facts that i had documentation on and and how how would you what were the nuts and bolts of that like frank would you um because some of the years were that you were researching and interviewing were during covid too or were you true were they so were you ever was it mostly over the phone would you record them or would you meet in person with some of the folks that were in ann arbor um, yeah, it was a mix. I mean, I definitely there were people. I, I zoomed someone in Hong Kong. You know, like I don't know, if they're like how many hours away. That <laughs> I was. always forget. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I spoke to people on the phone quite a bit um, in those early during the COVID, especially. And, and I mean, COVID kind of gave me a window to work on it because I was laid off from my job at the Michigan Theater, and I was hanging out at home. My daughter was zooming thing and um, for school, school Beatrix, <laughs> yeah. um, hey, you know, somehow Trixie. carried on yeah <laughs> Trixie we got, you know got her into a little pod so she had some companionship there but um, yeah it was really kind of interesting because that's when I talked to some of the major people like Ken Burns and my old housemate um, a guy named John Sloss who was here in Cinema 2 in the um, late 70s he was a DJ at CBN by the way he had a show he's right across the hall from us I guess there's some photos the Michigan Daily took of him in WRCN at the time. <laughs> but yeah, he was great source because now he's he produces, you know, he's a producer of Boyhood. I mean, Richard Linklater movies, Todd Haynes movies. Um, you know, he worked with Errol Morris and John Sayles and a whole bunch of A-list people. But he's, he I, I really credit him because he carries this sort of spirit of the Cinema 2 and Film Society. He, he works with independent films that are like good films he doesn't you know he's not trying to make a million bucks he's like let's let's make some cool cool films you know and and that started here in yeah. some way those values and he wasn't and, even like interested in film particularly but when he joined he told me when he joined cinema two he's like yeah my house my roommate down the hall said or you know in the dorm room a friend down the hall said oh yeah, i'm in this film society and it just kind of pushed him in that direction just like absorbed and, and that's that's the reason um for the the built space of the university, like that argument alone is the, mm -hmm. the reason why existing in a built space, a place mm -hmm. that values the um, curiosity, curiosity, intellectual mm -hmm. pursuits, trying things, um, being wrong, as well as endeavoring to be right, mm -hmm. um, like that happens here. And like when you when you come to the university as a student and that's what you also you represent so well the student activists in here they aren't passive they're they're coming here and they're being changed like mm -hmm. i think um because you've met mentioned pat olesco mm -hmm. several times and i maybe when we come back from break mm -hmm. we you, you might want to talk about her more frank but mm -hmm. she describes coming here and and having like I don't know her outfit on that seemed rather conservative, mm -hmm. and then 
the next thing you know, within like a, I don't know, a semester or so, mm-hmm. she's actually on stage opening the Ann Arbor Film Festival. Exactly. Starting starting a life that became, I don't know. Do yeah. You, yeah. No, I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, that was such an incredible story. And she comes t- to this day to the film festival. She didn't come this current one, but she came in the 60th a year ago and did this incredible performance uh, honoring, you know, the history of the film festival. So, yeah, it, it, it changed a lot of people's lives. It really did. And with you, how you knew to come um, to the cinema, too. You knew you wanted to be part of it mm-hmm. um, because you and your brother had come before you were mm-hmm. here at University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. You had driven, you know, the family car to get here. Yeah. Wow. Wait, can you... <laughs> You, you are like an encyclopedia of my book. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew you wanted to be part of cinema, too. What did it mean to you then when you got here? Yeah, it, again, it was sort of a thing that just kind of appealed. It wasn't like, oh, this will change my life, you know. But your, your comment just a minute ago about the built space is so, so important because it really was like I was brought into contact with these people that had you know similar interests but it was face to face and you 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 got to know people and you weren't it wasn't like an online thing where it's a thumbs up thumbs down you know you you kind of control the interaction if you don't like what the person's saying you never speak to them again we we were in this little team of like 15 people so we would have to show movies in our, in our case four nights a week but we would have to get the money bag and get the ticket roll and get the tape and tape the movie posters for the upcoming movies up and sit there for, you know, five hours selling tickets. And <laughs> if somebody had a problem, you know, they, we'd have to help them or whatever. And, you know, we were just college students, but it was like running a business. And also, there were, you know, you'd live or fall based on sales. So you, you, you were like, oh, let's show these movies, everybody. But like the older members would be like, you know, we showed that two years ago, man. Nobody came to see it. And you'd go, oh, okay. I mean, so you were learning from these interactions with these other people, and you're getting to respect, you know, the the Hugh Cohens who were like, oh, I've been here for ten years, you know, and it, and his incredible compatriot Ed Weber, who was the anarchist guy who ran the Labadee Collection, who was yes. like, I mean, I can't say it on the air, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> Andrew just perked up like there. <laughs> you know, one, one of the people who was here, a uh, wonderful guy, Rick Ayers, who was here in the, yes. the mid '60s. It's like, yeah, Ed Weber was a guy who didn't give up. Bleep. And, you know, he just would go out and, like, for the Lavity Collection to pick up all the protest flyers on campus. And, you know, he was like, let's show flaming creatures, you know. And they're like, well, but people got arrested and were yeah. convicted in New York. Yeah, well, you know, let's just do it anyway. That was pretty bold. You know, again, the university could have said, all right, kids, that's enough. On that note, I think Frank's bringing us to the half. We'll yeah. go to break today on Living we'll Writers. We'll talk more about that. We'll, yeah, we'll be back. We'll talk more about that. Frank Uli, Cinema Ann Arbor, How Campus Rebels Forged a Singular Film Culture. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. <laughs>
tuning in. You've got living writers, and today, Frank Yuli is here. Cinema, Ann Arbor, how Campus Rebels forged a singular film culture. Um, this this book is just, it's, I, I, I'm not original by saying it, because I think it's blurbed on the back as like a treasure trove. But from l- learning about how, how incredibly... Um, Ann Arbor, it was important and is important. And in the Ann Arbor Film Festival, it gave me also a new feeling of respect um, and wonder about something that um, I've known about since I came here as a grad student, but have sort of taken for granted as something that's part of our landscape. Um, You know, I never take WCBN for granted because, yeah, but I feel like I was doing that and I won't anymore because of part of your book and seeing how it's woven into the early history of how you show us what some students and grad students and early faculty members, how because of their passion and what they could see, they made sure that it was a presence on or near campus um, and it was revolutionary even in the national landscape because things like you said earlier, Frank, things are happening in, you know, New York City mm-hmm. and on the West Coast. But actually Ann Arbor with film was really critical in the early days. Like we're talking what, like the twenties and thirties or cause Harold Lloyd came and was mm-hmm. a guest speaker mm-hmm. and in from the silent film. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, you know, I just think he's you know. Oh, he's fine. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah. Would it- no, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, this gets onto, like, the U of M, go blue kind of philosophy. <laughs> but, you know, Ann Arbor did have a lot of firsts. I mean, the the Film Society, the Art Cinema League, sort of grew out of this thing this woman named Amy Loomis started at the Michigan League. And so she started showing films when the league opened in 1929 at Lydia Mendelssohn Theater. And Was that because women weren't allowed to watch films at the Michigan Union that was already no, showing they, films. They, they really well. They they sort of had or? a couple films at the, oh, okay. other places on campus, but it was more because they had just built this new facility and it was like a nice big venue. But also, I think she was just kind of a hip person. She had gone to New York to to try to get into the world of theater because she'd actually graduated in 1922. So she was able to, I think, experience like the art film when it was starting to take off a little bit in New York. So. You know, Hollywood was making slight artistic films, but also a lot of imports were coming from like Germany and Russia in the 20s, in the mid 20s. So in New York and a lot of other big cities, they would have these sort of art film theaters that were called little theaters. And Detroit had one in 1928, but um, Ann Arbor just you couldn't see these movies easily. And a couple of them would get shown like once a year in different places. But when the league opened, she was hired to run there. Lydia Mendelssohn Theater, and she was like, you know what, I've got weeks of nothing on our schedule, so let's just book the new Swedish film, you know, The Growth of the Soil, and why don't we show some experimental films, shorts before it, you know, and I'll get some undergrad to, like, play the piano. I mean, she just started the thing in 1929, like, boom, let's art films. And it wasn't, unfortunately, you know, she had a lot of mostly live events, so it wasn't, like, every single week, but for, like, the next three years, she started when she had breaks on her schedule showing like Eisenstein, she showed, you know, the passion of Joan of Arc, this incredible uh, Falconetti, you know, starring Arc Dreher film that 
you know, whereas before people were able to see it anywhere else, you know, in the Midwest probably. But yeah, in 1932, she took off to join another theater company out, out of state. So the students and faculty who had been enjoying her film programming said, well, let's just form a film society. And they called it the Art Cinema League in 1932. And they started off by showing Eisenstein's 10 Days It Shook the World, October. And it was, to, as far as I could determine, maybe the first campus film society in the country, right? I mean, it was, the people in Chicago say, oh, we're the first, you know, but then they're also claiming 1932. But I think, you know, in 1929 is kind of when you could say Ann Arbor started. So it's pretty important, you know, and, and other other places around the country, you know, it wasn't too long before it was, it was common and bigger campuses. But... Again, we kind of had that as a first, and then the Ann Arbor Film Festival in 1963 was, again, there were scattered places where they might show like a weekend of experimental films, but this art professor and experimental filmmaker, George Magnapelli, was like, let's just, you know, do an, a film festival, and he just wanted it to be every year, and it Did was Did it pure. grow out of once, Frank? So the once group, thank you for <laughs> mentioning that, T. Yes, he was part of the once group here, which was started in 19... 19- 61 by Robert Ashley and George Cacioppo and several other, you know, avant-garde composers that were, um, you know, having a hard time getting anyone to come and hear their weird, I mean, some of their music was just like playing one note. I won't do that again. Sorry, T. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. You know, there was just avant-garde stuff and they would get, like John Cage would come to town and Pauline Oliveros and these amazing avant-garde musicians that, you know, it was hard to get probably 50 people to show up but they were they were selling out the shows here in ann arbor in 1961 it's like wow you know it's 200 500 people came to see pauline oliveros you know play the accordion and in, in weird avant-garde stuff going on and so the once group suddenly made ann arbor into this like solid avant-garde audience i mean it just kind of flourished in the mid-60s and Manipelli was part of those people, and he was making weird movies where he would show like the two different screens side by side, and Robert Ashley would write like a, you know, discursing, discursive whatever soundtrack that would play in the background, and it would be like this this nonlinear movie going experience as part of the once group. So you know, Manipelli was like, well, why don't we just have a film festival? And so he started it, and it, again, it wasn't very long before that became the leading experimental film festival in the country, right? I mean, there just weren't forums like this. You know, like in New York, uh, Jonas Mekas was showing films, but, you know, a few dozen people might show up. And he was showing them regularly, and there were places in California. But this this became something where it would sell out, like, 350, 400 seats for, like, five nights in a row, and all the major experimental filmmakers, Stan Brackage and um, Storm to Hirsch and these people would send their films in, which they didn't send those films everywhere. They didn't have that many copies. They couldn't, you know, make a digital submission to 100 film festivals. They had maybe three copies, and they would get sent, you know, to very special places. So Ann Arbor was getting that stuff, and it was like, within two or three years, it was like national recognition. And one of the things we mentioned, we started off the show with the Velvet Underground, was... Uh, they got Andy Warhol and the Velvet Underground to come out here and do uptight with the Velvet Underground, which was, it, it kind of became known as the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. But for a few months, it was just called uptight. So <laughs> we actually had that before anyone else in the country outside of New York and I think maybe 
the New York, somewhere a couple of places on the East Coast, but it was unknown. And here, these people all drive across the country in this big RV, and Nico <laughs> apparently was driving and doesn't and driving like on the side of the road, while you're getting scared and stuff. And they're all here hanging out in Ann Arbor for a week and loving it, you know. And they did this, you know, Velvet Underground up here, and people like Iggy are there, like he's in a teenage. You know, he's in the Prime Movers blues band, and he's watching, you know, Nico and Andy Warhol and Lou Reed are there. And it was just this incredible mixing of the, the, the film festival brought this New York, California culture right here. And then we kind of took it with our own little Ann Arbor hands and molded <laughs> it into something a little uh, Ann Arbory, you know? And how, Frank, how did you find out, were those interviews that you did with the folks? Because in Cinema Ann Arbor, um, you um, you say how, um, I forget the name, is it Anne with a W? I can't think of Anne her Weir. name. Anne Weir. Yeah. Like, they hosted them at their house, but and they were going to also send them to friends' homes, but then they were like, no, we're all staying together. We're here at your house and in the RV, and just... Yeah, like how did did you talk with them? Did you hear stories about that moment, or was that some of the research that you found that were in like journal entries or diaries? Or oh no, I I was so fortunate to talk to people. I talked to Joe Ware, who breaks my heart. He he died about a month ago at the age oh. of ninety seven. Oh, good he had a good life. long life, good, yeah. but he I, I didn't get a copy of my book in his hands. I'm so bummed out. But yeah, he was he. I, I visited him, and he he ended up marrying a. George Manupelli's wife, Betty Johnson. So I sat in their apartment in San Francisco at four years or five years ago now and spent an afternoon talking to them about all this stuff and about the Once Group. And it was just fantastic. And yeah, Joe Ware was like, oh yeah, yeah we had to we had to put Warhol and those guys up. And, and there's stories that are not in the book about like, Nico was really hot for my son. She <laughs> took her a long time to get ready. She was upstairs and I don't know, maybe she might have been, you know, taking some heroin or something, and she came down, and she uh-huh. was like, oh, you know, talking to my son, and all these great things. I mean, it was just like, in, in, you know, Iggy was a friend of their teenage kids, and he was like, hanging out, and here comes, you know, Andy Warhol and John Cale, who ended up producing the first Stooges album. Before, this was before the Stooges, right? And Nico, who Iggy had some torrid affair with at some point. But yeah, it's like... Again, it all started in that Ann Arbor living room. Yeah. That, I <laughs> or that, RV. That, <laughs> no, that house, that, some of them slept in the RV. But that house is over there on Cambridge, the corner oh, of Cambridge really? <laughs> and Lincoln. Yeah. I, I, every time I pass it, I think, man, if you only knew you know the stories what of happened this in this in your, house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You've never knocked that, on their door. No, right? I mean, I kind of want to. No, but the Once Group, that was kind of like headquarters. But some of those people live nearby. So I talked to these people. And Betty Johnson was like, yeah, we, we were driving around and we'd see somebody's car we knew parked in front of one of our other once group people's house we just pull up go in and she was again these stories i couldn't fit in the book but there's wild stories about the once group people like mary ashley robert ashley's wife like uh standing up on the picnic table and peeing all over it and and saying you know this is a piece of art you know i've now created a work of art and they all get in their car and they're driving around and they crash into somebody's car at three in the morning and just like these people were I don't want to say deranged, but they were just like Ann Arbor's beatnik art crazies, you know, and they were like professors and stuff. I mean, they weren't like, you know, a bunch of weird college students. And some of them, the the weird thing is some of them were college students that mixed in. But yeah, the Once Group is a part of Ann Arbor's cultural history that has sort of been forgotten just because there's, 
it's a little too weird, a little too freaky, but no. it's a vital part. It influenced yeah. people like Iggy and Padalesco. I mean, she just like was blown away by what the Once Group was doing. And yeah. it made her whole life into a you know, career as a performance artist, you know? I think, let's try, if we can remember, Frank, let's try to pick up here. Okay. <laughs> I'll try to remember everyone. <laughs> um, because I think it is important to think about, like, this. The, again, bringing it back to the students that yeah. were here. Um, today, um, Cinema in Arbor with Frank Uly, How Campus Rebels, when we're hearing about them, how Campus Rebels forged a singular film culture. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Reverend Andrew behind the glass, and we'll be back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, you're just in time, because today on Living Writers, Frank Uli is here. His book, Cinema and Arbor, How Campus Rebels Forged a Singular Film Culture. Um, and it's where we are. We've got just a quarter left here together. And there's so much to talk with Frank about. But but I do want to read his bio here because it's it's one of our uh, time honored Living Writers traditions. And um, so here we go. Um, because, Frank, you're going to have the whole, the whole mm. thing here. Cultural historian Frank Uli writes about the fascinating people and stories behind beloved film and music projects with an emphasis on his adopted hometown of Ann Arbor. A, projection, a projectionist since the early 1980s, Uli's devotion to film was catalyzed when he joined one of the University of Michigan's student film societies as an undergraduate. Membership in Cinema 2 provided a rigorous education in the movies and a warm, robust, and lasting community of fellow film lovers whose stories take shape across the pages of Cinema in Ann Arbor. Yuli has shown films for various campus film societies, the University Drive-In, the Michigan and State Theaters, and the Ann Arbor Film Festival, and along the way, made experimental 8mm films, helped archive the papers of Orson Welles, and served as proofreader for Psychotronic Video Magazine. He's also the host of a long-running radio program on WCBN. Whoop, whoop that highlights Michigan music and a frequent contributor to Pulp, Ugly Things, and more, where he writes about film, music, business, history, and culture. Wow, and you can get all of those things in this book, Film, Music, Business, History, and Culture, um, Cinema and Arbor, and Rebels, and Revolutionaries. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and surprising moments, um, Frank, one of the most, and this is going to sound mm -hmm. very bizarre. I would mm -hmm. never have thought this. I was going mm -hmm. to say this to you today. But one of the surprising moments was when you quote the sergeant or lieutenant, the police who actually was the person who was responsible for shutting down flaming creatures mm -hmm. and his reasoning for it. I still was like that. He was trying to be 
heroic in his own way, Mm -hmm. misguided because he was on the side of censorship Mm -hmm. for this. But it was interesting to see how you included what what his reasonings were like. You didn't make him just um, a villain. Yeah, I, I felt his like, voice is in it too. I yeah, guess. no, I, I really tried to present multiple perspectives because I felt like that was, you know, really important to to, to not try to do a one sided story. And I mean, it's pretty hard not to make him into a villain. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he, they never gave the film. But yeah, all yeah. of these things. Yeah, yeah, but no, I mean, it, you know, I I definitely wanted to to show the layers that were going on, and that was important. Um, yeah, Lieutenant Sotomayor, he was legendary around here. He was <laughs> like, there's there's a bunch of photos, the Ann Arbor District Library, which Fifth Avenue Press was the start of this project. They, the Ann Arbor Library's imprint, which is mostly for local authors and local history, completely supported this and laid it out and made it into this ready-to-print book. And that, with a public library card, is accessible. But they also said to me, you know, you can take it and get it printed if you can find a publisher that's so generous incredible and the u of m press were like oh you've got a book it's like a turnkey thing they had to do just a little bit of tweaking to, to print it but they on their credit were like oh well we'll make it a coffee table book hardcover you know 340 pages it's it, it could have been a, a perfect bound thing like well this is a small kind of topic but it's been such a gratifying experience to have it come out like this Incredible. Yeah. And again, I really, um, you know, wanted to make sure the story was, was presented so that it it fit the, in my mind, the, the significance of the of the people that worked on it. But um, that's beautiful. But yeah. But and the design and the layout and how were you able to bring the artifacts in that you wanted on each of uh, like to go as companions to your text is that yeah um, I mean I, I, I work with them but they had some incredible designers Nate Poxy Morrison Amy mm-hmm. Mandazat and Amy Arons who worked together to put this together were just like amazing I mean they 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 took my suggestions but they went beyond I mean they I remember when I got a suggestion you can see there's a there's like two page spreads at yes. the end of certain chapters, and they said, oh, um, would, would it be okay if we did this two-page spread of this photo of all these people watching the Velvet Underground? And I thought, oh, wow, that's a really cool idea. Because you can really see the faces yeah. of the students and community members um, that are being um, yeah. <laughs> influenced or changed. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, it's like this big two-page spread, and I was like, oh, my gosh, now you're really taking it to a new level because... I, I, you know, it, it's it's a collaborative. It's like making a movie. It's a collaborative process. You're not the only person that made it happen, and the design team just really went above and beyond to make it look so great. But again, I was so fortunate to get. I mean, the, the photos of the Velvet Underground. There's like a two-page spread of these of these action shots. Well, they they, they took like a picture of the people holding a movie projector in the middle of the aisle shining on the Velvet Underground. I mean, they took a picture of the projection booth. This guy, Buster, Buster thank, yeah. thank him so much. 
you know, Buster Simpson. With, uh, you know, Warhol sitting yeah, you in could, the booth. And thank goodness you actually put that in the caption, because mm-hmm. I hadn't known to see that until you pointed it out. And then right. I thought, well, holy Toledo, there he is. Yeah, and one of the yeah. people I interviewed was like, Andy oh, I Warhol. was looking up at the booth, and Warhol was like holding a piece <laughs> of paper in front of the film to make it look weird. It's like weirder, like yeah. making it more of an active in the moment. Yeah, and here's a photo of Warhol well. in the booth doing yeah. that practically. I mean, yeah, there were so many uh, things that helped uh, illustrate the, the stories. Again, it was just like a multiple layer thing. Well, you know what? You This also is like, it's a love story mm-hmm. for Cinema Ann Arbor, mm-hmm. for the Ann Arbor Film Festival. Mm-hmm. I would say for film societies yeah. here at Michigan mm-hmm. and you, Cinema 2, mm-hmm. being part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think now about film societies here in Michigan or what is it like? Or is that the next book? <laughs> Wow, next book. That's like, <laughs> you just have a baby and you're like, uh, how many more babies are you going to have? Like, I'm dealing with this one right now. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, the film societies um, today are kind of thin. You know, it's like there's one kind of still surviving one that is kind of funded by the university called MFLIX. But the problem was that the content, I mean, we were kind of gatekeepers for the content. So in those days, if you wanted to see a movie, you had to rent a film. You know, a can of film would have to get shipped somewhere, and you'd have to hire a projectionist. There's a whole chapter on projection, which we didn't really touch on, and which was kind of amazing, too. But, um, yeah, you'd have to have someone show it on the screen, and then you'd have to sell tickets and get an audience to come. It wasn't like, oh, I'll just watch this movie tonight. You know, it became... So that was why the film societies existed, because of that necessity to create... a way to, to to show the films to an audience and a sustainable way yeah to. and and you know showing big hit movies to kind of get some more money in and then using it to fund the ones that you really wanted to see that weren't going to draw a big audience um but yeah today unfortunately it's just become kind of i mean one of the people i quoted in the book at, at the end of the film society said you know we were trying to recruit people but we couldn't students just didn't see the purpose of it it was like i don't again i want to cast aspersions but it's it's a different era but you know people would be like well i can watch a movie on netflix or you know they weren't saying oh gosh i want to show weird movies because it was a lot of work to show those weird movies but not thinking of the curatorial aspect of it and the in-person aspect because i guess you could still do the you know you could have your your movie picks or your Spotify lists or your, um, but the, the aspect of being together, like we were talking about earlier, where you actually, Mm -hmm. the energy of the people in the space Mm -hmm. and what's happening in the moment, whether it's Andy Warhol, you know, flickering a card across the projectionist Mm -hmm. or a woman (laughs) peeing on a picnic table (laughs) in someone's yard. I mean, maybe not near the, you know, the (laughs) film equipment. (laughs) Yeah, not near the (laughs) the canisters or whatever. Yeah. Um, But like the, like those and seeing that who's who's also coming to the spaces, mm-hmm. um, you know, Iggy Pop becoming maybe seeing a version of something he might want for himself when exactly. he first was here um, yeah. in Ann Arbor um, for that. Well, Ken Burns. That, Ken know, Burns. Coming and watching these films and soaking up just without knowing he was going to make documentaries necessarily, but just soaking, as he told me, you know, soaking up the structure of the narrative films that 
he said, well, why don't we make documentaries that are not just like an educational film about a topic? It's like, let's give it some drama and the storytelling. Yeah. And again, that was something that, he, you know, he obviously is a, he and his brother both make these films. But, you know, he on some level was influenced by being able to have this smorgasbord of cinema in Ann Arbor at a formative time in his life. And, you know, I did. I, I became a movie projectionist because I saw, oh, that's kind of cool. And there was a job opening and, you know. And some of the people, like John Sloss, was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to law school, and um, you know, I'm, I'm going to start representing these film. And some of it did pro bono. He's like, oh, there's a film uh, theater, I, I think, in New York that he started working with a little bit. But he started meeting filmmakers, and pretty soon, you know, he's like working with John Sales and all these people, Richard Linklater. I mean, those are things that evolved out of the atmosphere Ann Arbor created with this just extensive film culture that was, again burned brightly and kind of faded away once video stores and cable movie appeared. Maybe the Ann Arbor Film Festival is the place that students and community members Mm -hmm. can make sure that they're staying connected to and being part of and um, because I I believe, tell me if I'm wrong on this, Mm -hmm. Frank, of course, but um, you know, if if you're trying to make a small film um, of any size or Mm -hmm. a big, you know, you can be part of the film festival. There's different layers of participation Mm -hmm. and, um, and so that would be something that people could make sure that that's a community that they're, they're joining. Yeah, no, there's there's definitely, it's just important to develop that community of film goers. It's just beyond your living room, getting together with people with different perspectives and different uh, tastes, it, it develops you as a person. That's that's how I experienced it. And how we conceive the film and this media, mm-hmm. I think also it was, it was so um, uh, eye-opening and a good reminder, actually, mm-hmm. maybe more of a reminder, to see that the students and the faculty who were fighting mm-hmm. for um, like non-censorship, even mm-hmm. if they were some of the films that they didn't want to see. And there are complicated ideas. Yeah. Like We could have another whole hour of conversation about many things, projectionists, mm-hmm. um, and the um, and films that were problematic um, along gender race, right, you know. Right. Um, but the the idea that you can see something as art mm-hmm. and then decide um, what the experience is for you, but mm-hmm. and to talk with others about their experiences, that's transformative. Yeah. Um, and some of this stuff can be painful too, right. or boring, which is another <laughs> type of pain. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. That's that's an important thing. I I think reading the book helps bring yeah. back some of that uh, experience as a film goer. And I know we got to go. Frank Uli, we got to go. We got to go. It's been so lovely talking with you today. So lovely. Frank Uli, Cinema Ann Arbor, How Campus Rebels Forged a Singular Film Culture. Next Tuesday, Literati, 6.30 um, p.m. Go go and see Frank. Get a copy of this book in your hands. Thanks to Reverend Andrew. Thank Thanks, you. everyone, for listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor um, with Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Now, from WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 
An hour of programming randomly selected from our archive. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoice. After the war, new technology revolutionized the electronics industry. Television threatened to destroy radio, but another invention, the transistor, made radio more important and useful than ever. Radio lives today as a vital medium for bringing news, discussion, and music to millions of listeners all over the world. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. That's right, and it's just after 4 o'clock, which means it's time for Radio Roulette, our weekly, at least for now, weekly Monday show where I dig through the archives to see what old 45 high fives to slap onto your ears so that you enjoy music from the vault. It's uh, Johnny Tillotson up first, and this song is called Top Talk 